This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to the second season of the Gloria Purvis podcast where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. Over the summer, we had some time to rest and reflect, which is so important for all the work we do. We heard from so many of you in the listener survey, so thank you again for sharing such thoughtful and encouraging feedback with us. We heard that you love our esteemed guests, But you also challenged me to step in a bit more and share from my own perspective. So we're trying a new format this season. We'll continue to feature amazing guests on a regular basis and include more episodes of my commentary on topics emerging in politics, society, culture, and the church. So today, we're kicking off the season with a really great interview I did with Bishop Andrew Cousins. Bishop Andrew Cousins was appointed by Pope Francis to be the Bishop of the Diocese of Crookston, Minnesota, in 2021. Bishop Cousins is also the chair of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis, where, on behalf of the bishops, he is leading a three-year national Eucharistic revival that began this past June. I wanted to talk to Bishop Cousins because, while the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith, It also is costing the church about, I think, initial estimates were $28 million. And people had questions about that. But in between the time that it was first announced that it'd be around $28 million, Bishop Cousins somehow got the cost down to $14 to $16 million. And we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about the meaning of the Eucharist. And I don't know if you remember, but there was a Pew study about Catholic beliefs in the Eucharist that generated a lot of conversation. Of course, you know, there has been a lot of controversy around the Eucharist and politicians. One other thing you should probably know about why I want to talk with Bishop Cousins is because of his handling of the sex abuse crisis. He's had a tremendous pastoral heart for the survivors of that kind of horrific abuse. He's not one to shy away from or you know, give organization speak (laughs) when it comes to the sex abuse crisis. You can tell he actually cares about the souls, the people who were harmed, and he does not shy away from the difficult task of caring for those people, of having real encounter with them. And through his pastoral care and leadership, he was able to effect some real change in a Minnesota diocese that suffered with the grave evil of sex abuse. And one of the things I want you to just listen to and get a feel for is the way in which he interacts with people. And I think you can hear that in our conversation, the way he accompanies people, his gentleness, his humility, but also his leadership and competency. He's an authentic kind of guy.
The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And really, that is unique. You may not agree with everything that we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And guess what? That's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. And for those of us who are Catholic, we need to remember that we are bound together by our faith. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. And also go ahead and get a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Bishop Andrew Cousins is up next. Ah, Bishop Cousins, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. I am delighted to be here, Gloria. I've been a fan of your podcast for a long time, so I'm sort of honored to be on it. Oh, wow. I'm blushing right now. <laughs> that's, oh, that's a high compliment. Thank you so much. And of course, I remember meeting you when you were an auxiliary bishop in Minnesota and I've held you in high regard since then. And congratulations on you know being the bishop in Crookston in Minnesota. It's been a couple a year now, right? Not quite a year. Six, seven months. Yeah. What? Crookston is the furthest. We are the furthest most north diocese in the continental U.S. So that little place that sticks up called the Northwest Angle is in my diocese. And it's a beautiful oh. country up here. One of the things that I think would be interesting for our listeners to know is your story of how you first knew that you wanted to be a priest. I mean, how did that come about? How did you first know? You know, every story like that is so unique and mine's unique too. Um, my story actually begins in the womb. It's kind of mm. interesting. I didn't mm. know then, but my mother had a crisis pregnancy with me in the sense of when she was 20 weeks pregnant, her water broke and so a crisis in the pregnancy. And the first doctor told her that the baby in the womb was severely deformed and that basically she should induce labor. Oh. And thankfully, my mother wanted a second opinion and she got another doctor who said if she would stay on bed rest for the four months, then the rest of the pregnancy, then you know the baby could come out healthy. And uh, that's, in fact, what happened. My mom spent the rest of the pregnancy on bed rest, and I was born healthy. I had allergies, and I had a lot of other health issues, but relatively healthy. The point is that my parents always told me that story in a beautiful way, and they said, you know, God saved your life because mm. he has a plan for it, and mm. your job in this life is to figure out what that plan is. Now, of course, that's true of every human person, right? Every human person is created for a particular plan. Yeah. But it was because of that story in my life, it just, it was a real thing for me. And so when I was in first grade and my parish priest, for some reason, pulled me out of all the other first graders and asked me to make my first communion a year ahead, first confession and first communion oh. a year ahead, I was honored. And he found out he was leaving the parish and he wanted me to serve mass for him. And then uh, I just kind of, we stayed in touch with him, even though he left the parish because he retired and he became a really important role model for me when I was in grade school. And so pretty soon after serving my first mass, I said, I want to be a priest like Monsignor Barry, my Irish pastor. Uh -huh. And that just always stayed with me. But it was really probably when I was in junior high, I was on a retreat day. It was a charismatic renewal retreat day. My parents had been involved in the charismatic renewal. And on this retreat day, I just, I had an experience of the Lord I couldn't deny. Mm. And 
it was a simple thing, but you know, the, the retreat leader said, imagine Jesus standing in front of you and looking at you with love. And when he said that, I just experienced that Mm. and I knew it was real. So real that as a 12 year old, I went home and I jumped up and down in my room. You know, I shut the door (laughs) because I didn't want anybody to hear me, but I said, Jesus is alive and he loves me. Mm. And I think it was that experience that allowed me to respond to my vocation slowly. Even, you know, junior high, high school, I always knew he was real. And so, you know, then when I got to college where I could make a response, I knew that it was time to do so. Oh, wow. That is so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, At the age of 12, you had this profound encounter with the Lord. For some people, they might not be familiar with the Catholic charismatic renewal. Can you explain to folks what that is? Yeah. Yeah, the, the charismatic renewal in the Catholic Church really grew out of the Pentecostal Church. And it was basically people who had a devotion to the Holy Spirit and wanted to get to know the Holy Spirit as a real person and wanted to surrender their lives to his gifts, you know. And so um, still around and still, in fact, growing in certain ways. People are familiar with the Franciscan University of Steubenville, which really grew out of the charismatic renewal. But basically, it's people who, you know, they might be characterized by a certain type of prayer. They pray expressively, we used to say. We put our hands up and we might, you know, pray in tongues as the scripture speaks about. But the real heart of it is docility to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I think the great contribution of the charismatic renewal to the whole church is this fact that, you know, Jesus is a real person. He's alive. And if you surrender your life to him, he will lead you and guide you. And I think all the saints knew that before the charismatic renewal. Just a lot of people experienced that reality through the charismatic renewal. Yeah, Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, actually is where I first encountered the Catholic charismatic renewal. It's where, because I grew up in a Catholic church in the South, it was a Black Catholic church, then going to D.C. and in a parish that was predominantly African-American and a style of worship. So I was very okay with the expressive style of Mm -hmm. praying and worshiping the Lord. And I will say also, I believe, yeah, that is a total gift to the church. And it's a place Mm -hmm. where people can see, you know, it's okay to be docile (laughs) to the spirit, Mm -hmm. you know, and to Mm -hmm. wait on the Lord and to want to give your life to him, to grow closer to him, to love him in a full manner. So yeah, I and I'm thankful that that was your experience with it, and it led to that intense encounter with him. So you know, you you said yes, and then I guess what you became an auxiliary bishop was it in 2013? Yeah, I was ordained a priest in 1997, and I I did some doctoral studies in Rome, and then I taught at the seminary. And mm. after teaching at the seminary for about seven and a half years, I was called by Pope Francis to be an auxiliary bishop of the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis. I served as an auxiliary bishop then for eight years before the transfer last year to the Diocese of Crookston. So you were in everything as the sexual abuse crisis in the church had reared its head more than once. How did you manage to, amidst all this tumult, build a culture of healing, trust, and transparency within the church during this time? Yeah, that's a really important part of my own history. And uh, the main question about how is God brought good people to help. That was the real how. But yeah, I became an auxiliary bishop just, I mean, it's so timely that it, it can only be God, you know, but mm-hmm. the crisis broke in the archdiocese. You know, the press broke a case open about a priest who had been arrested in 2012 with the accusations that the archbishop hadn't dealt well with that case, a priest who had unfortunately had abused three boys. And that press story broke on September 23rd in 2013. 
the second week, another press story, September 30th, 2013. And then the next day, October 1st, is when the papal nuncio called me to tell me I was the auxiliary bishop. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And so oh, wow. the experience in my prayer was from the book of Daniel, where you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before the fiery furnace. And they yeah. say to King Nebuchadnezzar, well, we don't know if our God will save us, but we won't serve your false gods. <laughs> and, uh, mm. and that was my experience of becoming an auxiliary bishop was like, I don't, I got to go into this fire. It seemed like the archdiocese was on fire mm. and I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew I wouldn't serve any false gods. You know, Amen. I knew I would try to do what was right. And, you know, thankfully the Lord brought good people, but we had the perfect storm in the archdiocese. We had bankruptcy, you know, that got declared over 400 cases of sexual abuse that ultimately was settled in a $200 million settlement. We had criminal charges. And when we got those, the archdiocese was criminally charged. The other two bishops resigned. So at that point, I was the only one left. Mm. But then the Lord sent Archbishop Hebda, uh, yeah. who had been the coadjutor in Newark, who was a great help. And the Lord just brought other really great lay people along, people who knew how to help us really establish both transparency and trustworthy, safe environments, and really helped us to reestablish our credibility in the community. We had a, a very ironic situation in St. Paul, Minneapolis, where we were sued criminally. We were charged criminally by the county attorney, but we began to work with them and we developed an accountability system with them so that they would come and check on us every six months. Mm. And because of that, they agreed to drop the charges. So we were never actually charged. The beauty was every six months they came in, the county attorney looked at everything, and then they announced to the public, the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis is doing what they said they would do. Right. And so okay. after three years, then they said, we've seen a culture change here. But that was all because we decided on a path from the beginning that we would work with law enforcement and that mm -hmm. they had the same goal that we had, which was safe environments for our youth. Right. And so we would be transparent with them and work with them, and we were able to convince them of that. And then, of course, we had to do a lot of work with victims as well. And so we really engaged the victim community and actually tried to get them to help us. Well, you were a spiritual director to abuse survivors. Yeah, I, I had that privilege. It's a real, it was a, one of the great privileges. Yeah. Still do walk with at least one, you know, abuse survivor in spiritual direction. It's a great privilege. It's very, you know, it's not easy work sure. because um, the recovery from that terrible abuse is really hard. Yeah. But it's good work and it's such a privilege when people trust you to try to help them, especially me and the cleric, you know, like yes. I, I sort of understand when an abuse victim of a priest doesn't trust a priest. You know? Right, right. Um, we understand that. And, you know, I think the things I've learned is certainly you got to take a victim's first approach. You got to be most concerned about the victims, you know. Right. And then you have to really try to establish good processes and be transparent about those processes in order to reestablish credibility. You have to say, here's what we're going to do. And you, you trust those processes and you follow them even when it's difficult to follow them. But it takes time and we still got a lot of work to do right. you know, as a church. You know, now I understand, I'm, I don't want to embarrass you, but a priest once said to me that you were a prince of a man. He said, oh, you got to meet mm. Bishop Cousins. He's a prince of a man. I see what he means. I see what he means. Now I'm blushing. <laughs> yeah, you're right. But I think people need to hear that we have shepherds that are shepherding people in really difficult circumstances and that you're willing to suffer with them, really, that you're walking with them through these extreme difficulties because you love them. 
you are trying to feed his sheep. You know, if you love me, feed my sheep. And that's what I'm hearing that you're doing. So this makes sense now that you would also want to make sure that there is this Eucharistic revival that also feeds his sheep with his mm-hmm. body. You know, and for some listeners, they're like the Eucharist. What 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 does that mean? How would you explain it mm-hmm. to maybe some of our listeners that maybe didn't get a great catechesis on it or are for the first time hearing this word? And that's something that is important to Catholics, the source and summit of our faith. How would you explain it to them? The Eucharist is Christ's greatest gift to his church. And the Eucharist as Vatican II says, contains the entire spiritual wealth of the church. And that's because it contains Christ himself. And mm-hmm. on the night before he died, when he sat with his closest friends, he gave them this incredible gift, which would do two things that we can't live without. One of them is to give us his presence with us mm-hmm. so that his life and his presence would continue with us always. And the other is to give us the opportunity to renew our own covenantal worship with him. And so the fact that he invites us to participate in the one true act of worship that was ever offered in the history of the world, which was the one act of worship Jesus offered on the cross, and that he allows us to participate in that worship, to participate there in his paschal mystery. So in the tradition, we speak about those as the real presence and the sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. But Pope Francis speaks so beautifully about this in his most recent letter on the liturgy, where he talks about what it means that we can participate in this real worship. And he says, for, he says, for us, a symbol is not enough. Right. We need to really be there. We need to really be there worshiping with Jesus and become one with him, which is what it means to be the body of Christ. Not just that we receive the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. but that we learn to be able to make our whole lives a gift with his life, a gift to the Father, which is the beautiful gift of what can happen at Mass. So those two things make up this incredible gift. We'll be back in a minute. You know, as I reflect on my own encounter with the Eucharist, which is what brought me mm-hmm. to church, coincidentally at age 12, you had an experience that Jesus was real I had an experience also at age 12 that Jesus was real, but it came during Eucharistic adoration. You know, Mm. um, I was not a Catholic. I went to Catholic school and due to some shenanigans we, you know, we did during Mm -hmm. lunch, the Mm -hmm. religious sister who taught us religion after lunch and who was also the principal school had us go over to the adoration chapel with her so that she could actually pray in front of Lord try to work out her frustration with us, with Jesus. Praise She's trying God. to get it, you know, but we had to sit there quietly because we were kind of on punishment really for how we had acted during lunch. But it was in that silence, mm. in the presence of our Lord that I had this, I could only describe it as a mystical experience because mm-hmm. my body was consumed with flames. I knew I was on fire, but it didn't hurt. And in that those flames, mm. I just immediately knew that what was in front of me was real and alive. Mm-hmm. and that I was mm-hmm. called to to union with that. And so when Sister Carmelita came to my class a couple of days later and said, hey, I need to get to Catholics together for confirmation, I went to her and said, hey, I, I, I'm supposed to be a Catholic. And she was like, girl, mm. you, gotta, you can't just march up here and say you want to be a Catholic. You got to go home and ask permission from your parents. So mm-hmm. I didn't do that. I just went home and told my parents that I'm becoming a Catholic. 
Like, <laughs> think about that now, the nerve. That is awesome. You know, Pope Francis speaks about this all the time. And we know that discipleship begins with an authentic encounter. So the kind of encounter you had with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. And my experience is when I speak to young people and I ask them, especially I, I meet them who are young, who are alive in their faith, I say, when, what happened? I, eight out of 10 describe an experience like you just did in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Mm. Like there's something about being in adoration for young people, especially where they encounter Jesus now and they can see he's alive. And I think it's the silence. And I'm hoping through this Eucharistic revival, it changes the lives of many, many others who can come and commune with the Lord. Mm -hmm. And I know that this is going to be a major, this event is major in the church United States cost, what, around $28 million. It's going to culminate in a major event in Indianapolis in 2024. Actually, the good news is we've been able to cut the price in half. Oh, what? We're getting that word out, but we've, we've okay. redone the whole budget. It's going to be much more like 14 to $16 million. So we've been really grateful for some of the work of the Congress Corporation, and they've really dug into this, and we've got real numbers mm. now. So we're it's going to be much less expensive, thank God. Well, you know, I guess maybe for me, it doesn't bother me with $28 million because I'm like, what it is that is trying to be done is so exactly. necessary and important for believers in this country. I mean, the whole point, if the source and summit of our faith is the Eucharist. And so I guess for me, I'm like, they spend, how much do people spend to go on the Super Bowl or something like that? For what? For some exactly. entertainment. So so we know we're going to have this Eucharistic revival. What was the yes. impetus? What was the impetus? What was the point at which the bishops all said, you know what, we're going to do this? Yeah. So like a lot of things in my life, I didn't choose them. They chose me. So, <laughs> <laughs> what happened? This was Bishop Barron's idea. Ah. It was Bishop Barron. So it was the fall of 2019. And we had that Pew study, which seemed to show that only 30% of Catholics expressed a Catholic understanding of the Eucharist. 30% mm -hmm. believed in the real presence or the way we understand it. Now, there was a lot of questions about that study. And we're redoing that study to try to get to the real belief of Catholics. But everybody knew it pointed to a problem. And it caught the bishop's attention. And Bishop Barron came up with this idea of doing a multi-year renewal project on the Eucharist that would involve the whole country. And he presented it to committee chairs of the bishop's conference, which is kind of the way the conference runs. You know, mm -hmm. you have these chairs who are elected. And I was chair-elect as of November 2019. So I was in on these meetings preparing to take over the Committee of Evangelization from Bishop Barron in 2020. And so we had a meeting in January and February of 2020 about the Eucharistic revival. We even had the name and Bishop Barron was promoting this and all the committee chairs were in favor of it. We were going to bring it to the bishops in June of 2020. And then something happened in March that prevented all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pandemic. Which was COVID. Yes. And so we didn't even have a June meeting. Right. And then it was, so it was November of 2020 when we brought it to the bishops. And by then, because of COVID, they were like, oh my gosh, the Holy Spirit was already preparing this mm -hmm. so that we could really begin to push this out as we're coming out of COVID. And so I was then in charge of the Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis and was charged with building it, which I spent all that spring 2021. You were on one of those consultation yes, I calls was. I did. Uh -huh. We did evangelistic and, and diocesan and parish leaders from all over the country to ask them, if we were going to do something that involved the whole country, what would you recommend? And those ideas were really helpful. And so we built this three-year revival. And so just to give you the basics of it, the diocesan year is really focused on leaders. So we began that June 19, 2022. 
with Corpus Christi processions all over the country. And then we're really focused this year on leaders. And so we're trying to engage leaders through diocesan point persons, but also through apostolates. And right from the beginning, we wanted this not just to be a top-down event, but really Mm -hmm. we wanted lots of apostolates to be engaged. And so we've been so grateful for the collaboration of, say, like the Steubenville Conferences or the Knights of Columbus or Mm -hmm. NCYC and others who are taking the opportunity to focus on the Eucharist or our Sunday visitor sponsors a virtual conference every year that's grown quite big and they're going to focus on the Eucharist, you know? Mm-hmm. So basically to engage leaders in the revival, we really want them to kind of become, to see themselves as Eucharistic missionaries. And then in the second year of the revival will be the parish year. And that's where we really want to reach those people who they come to church, maybe even every Sunday, mm-hmm. but they don't fully understand the gift of the Eucharist. And so we want to use small group study We want to use Mm. parish-based adoration, parish-based catechesis to really reach those people who have a connection to the church. And if we could set them on fire with the way you were set on fire with your experience of the Eucharist, it would change everything for them. That year then will culminate in what's going to be the most exciting aspect of the revival, which is the National Eucharistic Congress. So this is the first really Eucharistic Congress of this scale in almost 50 years. We're hoping to have eighty to 100,000 people go to Indianapolis, July 17 to 21, 2024. Really a gathering of the American church. And really, we want the whole church to be there, right? Right, yes. And this idea that we would come together with our many cultures, with our many ages and generations, and that we would celebrate unity. We mm-hmm. would experience an encounter, a transforming encounter, and then we would be sent on mission. Okay. We're trying to help the church make the missionary conversion we need to make in this country if we're going to survive. We Mm. need to become like the early church and become missionaries again. The Eucharist is the place where we experience most clearly our relationship and where we know who we are. Yes. And if we know who we are, then we're automatically set on fire for mission. If I know I'm God's beloved, just what you experienced in that adoration, right? I am Mm. known by him. I'm loved by him. Then I'm on fire for mission right away. And That kind of conversion, missionary conversion, is what we're really seeking through the Eucharistic revival. You know, as we talk about the Eucharist, I also think about how, frankly, secular voices seem to, in my opinion, sometimes confuse people about what the Eucharist is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I did an interview with Archbishop Cordelioni about Mm -hmm. the Eucharist and his decision to try to Mm -hmm. get Nancy Pelosi to understand, hey, you're in grave danger by your public actions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they make pastoral decisions. Each bishop can make a pastoral decision, his own. That's within their own diocese. But I also Mm -hmm. see when the secular press comments on it, that it Mm -hmm. seems to, for some people, reduce the Eucharist to a political football. And how might we be able to, you know, help people understand, you know, that it isn't a political football, but like, how do we help them understand like the varying approaches to dealing with community politicians? Yeah. Yeah. These are all the modern complexities of our world today and it's complex, but a couple of things. First, you know, the teaching of the church is clear and the bishops, when we passed the document last November, we passed it by wide margins. There was a lot of unity around what was said in that document by the U.S. bishops on the Eucharist. And it restated the teaching of the church, which is that in order to receive the Eucharist, it calls me to live a certain way of life, right? The Eucharist Mm -hmm. is a covenantal action. And when I go forward to say, amen, I'm saying, 
it's why we don't translate that word. It's a covenantal word, right? It means not just I believe in the Eucharist, but I believe in the Christian way of life. And of course, none of us are perfect. That's true. But I must be seeking conversion. And that's our teaching of a church. And that's it's always been our teaching. And it's that's clear. Then you have pastors who are dealing with very difficult situations, right? Yeah. And nobody wants to deal with these situations because they're difficult. And so prudence requires that when I make a pastoral decision, I have to take into account all the effects of that, right? So you can understand why two bishops might look at the same question and end up with a different answer because they're looking at what are the effects of this decision, right? Yes, yes. And what is the impact of this decision? And, you know, so I I certainly respect Bishop Corleone's decision to say, my main concern now is for the soul of Nancy Pelosi, Right. And at a certain point, I need to take a step there for her sake so she understands how serious this is. And I respect that some bishops are still dealing with the question, what's the best thing to do here? Right. And and might say, you know, not, I don't think the best thing is for me to publicly do this ban because that could be seen as political, et cetera, you know? Right. I do think what's important to emphasize is our teaching. And, you know, I, I think I'm on safe ground to say no bishop thinks <laughs> that a politician who is actively promoting abortion should be going to communion, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Because there's an inconsistency there. And we all Mm -hmm. know that. The question is, what do I do when they're still obstinate in that? And how obstinate are they? What, What should I do about it? Right. I get that, right? And, you know, and I think you've explained it so clearly. So hopefully people can understand that here. It doesn't change the truth of what the Eucharist is, who the Eucharist is, and that what a bishop does is based on exactly what you're saying is the care and shepherding Mm -hmm. of souls. And each bishop may have their own approach. You know, I'm thinking about the synodal process. Pope Francis kicked off the synodal process worldwide. So we might be a listening church. And Mm -hmm. to me, I at least see what the Eucharistic revival is hoping to do is to get people to be this listening church, you know, where they come Mm -hmm. and they're listening. What are we saying about Mm -hmm. the Eucharist? What is it? How are you engaging with it? But so far, I'm wondering, what has that been like, this listening so far in the Diocese of Crookston? You know, it's interesting because, so we did 14 prayer listening events around the diocese this spring, which was a great opportunity for me as a new bishop, right? I could get to all these places. And I was, I got to 13 of the 14. Two of them were scheduled at the same time. And so oh, I couldn't get by locate right. yet. Right. But um, <laughs> right. but the, uh, the beauty was to see the faith of the people coming forth. And actually, one of the things that did come out of those listening sessions was this grave concern about people not understanding the Eucharist and, you know, people disaffiliating from the church and certainly especially our young people. And there was also even a call for greater reverence with regard to the Eucharist that came from those listening sessions. It was one of our top things, you know, when we listed all the categories that people were concerned about. And so uh, for us, and I've heard many bishops say this, it really sort of fit right into the Eucharistic revival as kind of a great way to flow out of that as we're trying to do evangelization, as we're trying to help people grow in their own understanding of their faith. The Eucharistic revival is a great kind of response to some of that listening. And I think you're right. Because one of the other big things that Pope Francis is important on is that a synod isn't just listening to the voices of the world. It's actually listening to the Holy Spirit Amen. and yes. teaching people to pray and adoration and teaching people to get more out of the mass. This is going to help them listen more to God so that the answers we respond with aren't just, you know, my good idea. 
Right. My good idea is nearly as good idea as God's good idea. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And you know, one of the uh, doctors of the church, one of my favorite saints, Saint Teresa of Avila, talks about the importance of prayer. Mm-hmm. It's in her book, The Interior Castle. And she says that the center of the castle is God's dwelling place and the gate of entry is prayer. Prayer is a door mm-hmm. that opens up into the mystery of God and at the same time, a means of communing with him. It actuates the personal relationship with the Lord present in the very depths of the spirit. And Mm -hmm. so imagine that kind of prayer, you know, that kind of connection during adoration, that kind of Mm -hmm. connection when you actually receive him during communion, you receive him. Yeah, I mean, it just blows my mind that the Lord has Mm -hmm. frankly given himself to us in this way and that we can commune with him in this way. I just, you know, well, can we hear him? Will we be willing to listen? And having mm-hmm. that time in the church um, and the diocese saying, you know, yeah, we're concerned about the Eucharist. And so I'm really actually very excited over the next three years of what this mm-hmm. portends for the church in the United States, what this portends for the United States. What goodness could come of this? Mm-hmm. I'm just super excited, especially because it seems right now everything is so contentious and divisive. And we really have this opportunity to show that there's another way. There's a better way. Yeah, really, uh, one of our real goals is unity. In fact, this is when I knew that this was a movement of the Holy Spirit was in last November when we had to put before the bishops this vote on whether or not we should have a Eucharistic Congress, you know. Mm -hmm. And we asked them for permission to start a new foundation that would be run by bishops, you know, Mm -hmm. and that would run this Eucharistic Congress. And you know, in the bishops' conference, we vote with those little clickers, you know, and yeah, yeah, uh, we yeah. all have our clickers. And, and <laughs> yeah. I forgot, I was up making the presentation and I forgot my clicker. And I was with Archbishop Thompson. He's from Indianapolis. And I looked at him and said, you got your clicker? He said, no, I forgot my clicker. <laughs> I thought, oh, no, we're down, we're down <laughs> two, two votes. votes. This right. thing might not pass. Right, right. And then, so when they took the vote, and I believe it was 207 to 12 wow. in favor of this, then I was like, oh, man, the Holy Spirit, Spirit. wants this. Indeed, the Holy indeed. Spirit's moving the bishops, and the bishops are united on this. Yeah, and that's a really exciting thing, and that's what I really believe. Like Indianapolis is going to be an experience of the church, the church coming together around the thing that unites us, which is Jesus's body and blood, and that's going to have lasting impact on us. I have no doubt that it's going to have a lasting impact, and I can tell you, someone who's been to Eucharistic Congress has been to a World Youth Day, to be in fellowship with so many people Mm -hmm. with different styles of worship, but all the same belief, different languages, Mm -hmm. but all the same belief is, I I can't even describe it. And I hope everybody that's listening gets a chance to attend. And if you want more, there's a website, eucharisticrevival.org. Go there, find out. They even have ways that you can participate and sign up and get more Mm -hmm. information. I'm so happy that you're doing this. Thank you for your yes in your priesthood. And thank you for saying yes to having this Eucharistic revival. I really believe it's going to have just immeasurable impact on the life of the church in the United States and on our country itself. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I'm so, I'm just, thank you. Thank you, Bishop Cousins. Thank you, Gloria. And thanks for all you're doing. And and thank you for your yes. It's a great inspiration. Ah, glory to God. Amen. Amen. I am so glad you're tuning into the Glory of Purpose podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member 
And be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Oh, and could you do me a favor? Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and it's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.